growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. Welcome to another episode of the How We Solve show. Today, we have another really exciting topic. Uh, We have a book author on on the show. His name is Ben Ben Sao. He's a professor and former dean of the executive education at INSEAD. And he's a business innovation consultant and he's helped a lot of world-leading companies to build innovation into their DNA. He's also a visiting professor at Harvard Business School, a research fellow at Wharton School of Management, and a visiting scholar at Haas Berkeley. I'm really excited to have him on the show and figure out how to build this innovation culture into your company. Ben, pleasure to have you. Thank you. You wrote this book on how um, built to innovate. And I'd love to learn from you, how can I build this into my companies that everybody has this in their DNA that they hardwired to innovate in the organization? Well, I think we're going to have a good conversation about this. So what I've noticed is that how I got started, basically, right? What I've noticed is that many people think that you need a, a genius leader or to be a startup. Not true. Doing the research that led to the book, I found established companies, even century-old companies, able to innovate. How? Well, they don't necessarily look for huge industry-changing effects, but for small but important changes in sometimes very often unexpected places. And what they do, they use continuous systematic innovation, mm-hmm. innovation of all kinds and driven by everyone. So this is what I mean by driving innovation into your DNA is really creating what I call actually an innovating engine mm-hmm. where it is totally legitimized, protected space where anyone can innovate Mm-hmm. You can innovate in everything you do, not just in your products, in your technologies, but also in your services, in your processes. And very important, innovating becomes a habit. And this is how it gets into your DNA. I'm a huge habit nerd. I think habits determine everything in our lives. If you're rich, poor, happy or unhappy, obese or unshaped, it all boils down to which habits you cultivate. And it's also in your business, what kind of habits do you have? What kind of culture do you create? For example, something that we do in my businesses, which you may like, which I think is along these lines, is we have an improvement or error log where we log all the mess-ups that we commit, customer complaints, like anything goes wrong in a business. Which apartment did this happen? The description of what happened, which customer was affected, is it solved or not? But most importantly, what is the solution for this so we can make sure this never happens again? Which SOP, which standard operating procedure can we improve to make this not happen again, right? So we're kind of like a self-healing machine, you know? And and I guess also your concept is like being 1% better every day. It has this huge effect overall if you continuously improve. Yeah, so it could be the same in the sense, you know, it's like being more innovative 1% every day. So this is, I start with the point of view that number one, I mean, I don't think anybody would debate that anyone has innovative potential. That's for sure, right? Second, everyone in a company has a customer. The customer could be an internal customer or an external customer. And maybe 90% or 95% of the time, people are focused on execution. So to build the innovation habit is simply to kind of create a space, a time where anyone, anyone in the company can spend some time doing some innovating activity. 
I mean, and the innovative activity can be very simple. I mean, you could be like in HR and join a cross-disciplinary team doing a new product development, for instance. And this is where the habit notion is very important. For me, when I think of habit, I think of people who are health conscious, you know, and they regularly exercise or they go to the gym. So it is about building that habit into your life. And that has to start with middle management. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But making sure that anybody on a regular basis has a time, it can be short, it can be 30 minutes every month, every other month, but they time, they spend the time where they switch their mindset. They're not in execution mode, but they are in innovating mode. And it can be as simple as spending time with a customer and listening. It can be very simple. I can give you an example, for instance, of Something very simple. Once Starwood, the hospitality global company, I mean, 850 hotels, I think, around the world, they had a conference in Paris and they had 700 frontline managers, hotel frontline managers attending. And during that conference, they wanted us to talk about innovation. So what we did is that we took the 700 attendees, we split them in 64 teams we gave them like a couple very simple kind of mind expanding tools. And then we send them in their teams roaming into the streets of Paris. We gave them notepads and cameras to take pictures and videos. And basically we challenged them to roam around the streets and to find some insights, some new ideas, some, some experiences about their customers. Three hours later, they all came back. And they had a wealth of ideas and insights about the customer. They generated 1,700 ideas. So then they just kind of cleaned them up. They codified them, sorted them. I mean, the majority were ideas to improve some existing process. But some of the ideas actually became strategic initiatives that they implemented globally. Like I can talk about Fantastic, F-M-A, Tastic, Fantastic. It's a newer marketing approach that focuses on the lessons from kids and not the parents to develop new products. And this was generated during that expedition in Paris. And what was really impressive to me is when we interviewed some of the people afterwards, one guy was telling us, you know, I'm not the innovative type. I never thought I was an innovative type. But then after doing this, he realized, he said, you know, I think I can do it. So it can be as simple as getting people to spend some time with a customer. Just go around the streets and look at your customer. And then you have to basically get a, a few simple tools to learn how to, you will be familiar with this, listen to the voice of the customer, but also listen to the silence of the customer, the things that the customers don't tell you. And then also learn how to listen to non-customers. But it can be very simple. It doesn't have to be a very sophisticated process. And then if people do this on a regular basis, then they will, just like the metaphor says, they will strengthen their innovation muscle. It's just like a muscle. You just have to train it every day. And the more you practice, the better you get. Yep. And if you don't use it, you lose it like everything else in life. Absolutely. I'm curious if you can give some examples on like what kind of questions or tasks or like checklist or like how do you arm people that they get into this mindset? Is it like a questionnaire or like some, some questions to expand their mind? Yes. And I'll try to give you another example again. When you are in execution, you're very much in a supply side mode. 
right? Heads down and you're trying to solve a problem. So you get specialists and they're trying to solve a problem. And it's a very much conversion process because it's problem solving, right? But when you are in your innovating mode, when you switch to the innovating engine, you know, you kind of turn the switch and you are innovating engine, you should look at your work from the customer side. You should adopt the customer side view. Even if it's for 10 minutes, you switch your mind from, not from sell mode, you know, trying to sell, but you're trying to listen. So you switch from a tell mode or sell mode to a listen mode. And you, you need to listen with empathy to be able to listen to the voice of the customer because the customer is talking to you, is telling you things. But very often people, because they're totally in sell mode, they don't hear what the customer says. And then you have to also listen to the voice of the customer. And there, the challenge, and I describe in the book a formal template, and I can tell you a few words about that, to try to understand the life of the customer. You don't worry about your product or your process. You're trying to understand what problems they're solving. In design thinking, they call it job to be done. What is it that the customer is trying to do? I can tell you the story of Philips, mm-hmm. the Dutch consumer electronics and appliance company. They designed and launched the first kettle with a lime scale filter. I didn't know what was lime scale in English before, but it's the calcium that you have sometimes in the tap water. And then when you, you boil the water, the calcium kind of creates a, a little coat on top of the white coat. Yes. Right, white coat. So this is the lime scale. It was a consultant in our team who worked with Philips and they were trying to boost their market share in the British market and they didn't know what to do. So the project leader had sent a few people to live in families, Hmm. to actually live with customer families. And a few of them, after a few days, they noticed that when the customers were pouring the water into the, the cup of tea, yeah, little pieces of limestone come out, yeah. Yeah, little slime scale. I mean, it's, it's sometimes almost impossible to see it. It's like a little cloud, you know, a little white cloud. That was really interesting because they understood immediately that they were noticing something that the customer had never told them. Mm-hmm. You see, the customer never told them. And why did the customer never tell them? Of course, they noticed people were aware of the lime scale because they saw them trying to, to scoop it with a spoon, you know, to take it out. But the thing is that the customer knew about the problem, but they never thought that this was a problem to talk to the cattle manufacturer about. They would complain, and they did complain to the water authorities. Yeah, I was about to say, I would have gone to the water guy, not to the cattle guy. See? Exactly. So when you are trying to innovate for your customer, you need to understand what is their problem? What are they trying to solve beyond your product? So... This is a very typical example of a problem that the customer knows about, but they never talk to you about because they don't think it's your problem to solve. And then, of course, Philips went back to the design room and they just introduced the first filter. It's a mouse filter. You can check your kettle now. All kettles have that. A mouse filter, the little triangle that filters the lime scale when you're pouring. So this is an example of what I call listening to the silence of the customer. And for this, you need to have a very systematic approach. You have to try to understand what are the steps in the life of the customer. For instance, if you're going to use a kettle, what happens before you use it? What happens after you use it? So you have to create like a process map of what happens to the life of the customer. But this is very important before and after. And then you observe 
you don't ask questions because they won't know. You observe, you take pictures, you do videos, you try to live the life of the customer, you try to be the customer, and you ask yourself always a question, what do I like? What do I dislike? What do they wish for? And then you are able to find this, I call them weak signals, because they're not strong signals. Strong signals everybody can pick up, but the weak signals, and this is the silence of the customer. Very interesting. I mean, I have a whole chapter, it's chapter 10, actually, that talks about specific tools and templates, like you say, questionnaires, methods about how you do this. So one of them, of course, is to live with your customer when you can. A new business of mine is UpCoach, which is a coaching software, software for coaches to run their coaching business better. Yes. I'm not a coach by trade. A friend of mine told me the story that after the Vietnam War, the U.S. general, like 15 years or so, went with the president to Vietnam, and then he met his counterpart, the other military leader. And he asked him, like, how could you win against us? You know, we had, like, more money, better weapons, more people, like, more resources. Like, how in the world were you able to beat us? And the Vietnamese guy said, like, because we understand the jungle better. You know, and I guess it's like, this is kind of like the same thing with, like, if you really understand your customer, and this is how I solved this. Todd Herman, who's a coach for 25 years, I got him in as a business partner into this business because I don't understand the jungle, but he has lived all these pain points. And I think often if people build products where they don't have to felt the pain themselves, it's really hard to kind of imagine what is the real pain if you ha haven't lived it. And in terms of systematizing it, I had this document called Understand the Jungle. So I had calls with like 150, 200 coaches. And I, you know, kind of asked them like how they run the business and kind of really understand how they deliver what I'm solving with my software. Then I showed them my software and asked like, you know, what would you remove and what would you add? And you kind of like to get a good understanding feeling. But yes, I think it's really crucial. If you understand your customer really well, you're going to win against the competition because you know what to build. Yes. The way I say it, I think in English, people react to that when I say this. You need to understand your customer in spite of them. <laughs> don't expect them to tell you because they don't know, or as I showed you now, they might know, but don't think that they should tell you because it's not your business to solve that. But you need to understand them in spite of them. So first, you have to switch your mind. Huh? I mean, this is very important. You have to pivot from an execution mindset which is very supply side, you have a solution and you're trying to sell your solution to a customer's mindset, right? If you don't do that switch, you'll keep trying to find reasons for why they should buy your solution. So you have to have a lot of empathy and really understand the whole thing in its globality as if like the customer was trying to hide something from you and you have to discover it. Sherlock Holmes. Exactly. Since you mentioned Sherlock Holmes, my metaphor for this when you're doing innovation is to be like a private detective, an investigator, a private detective. My favorite detective is not Sherlock Holmes, actually. I don't know if you know him, is Colombo. Colombo, yes. I know Colombo, yeah. The guy with the cigar and the trench coat, yeah. Exactly. And you have to ask like silly questions and pretend you don't know anything. You know very well, but you just. So this is exactly how you have to behave when you're trying to listen to the silence of the customer because if you come and you have your certainties and you say, oh, I understand your problem, then actually people will not even talk to you. They will expect that you're trying to sell something. I mean, for me, the word empathy is very important. But of course, when you are executing, when you're selling, you have selling. It's a different mode. How do you get into this mode? Or better questions, like how do you create this habit? And you know, who should do this? You said like everybody should do this in, in the business. 
you can imagine many companies have a, a very efficient execution engine. And it's very structured. It has a governance structure. It has processes and it has a culture. So what I'm talking about when embedding the DNA, innovation DNA, you need to create, in addition to the execution engine, you have to formally create what I call an innovating engine. And it has to have an infrastructure. It has to have processes and it has to have a culture. Now, any employee. Of course, they spend most of, except maybe R&D and people who are specialized in innovation, most of the people spend their time in the execution mode, in the execution space. But middle managers have to create the space and the time for people to spend time on a regular basis in the innovation engine, right? In the innovation space. And for that, everybody has to be there. Frontline people, middle managers, and senior level people have to be engaged in the innovation engine. So the innovation engine, let me maybe start with the processes. There are three processes that are underlying the innovating engine. One is creation. You have to create ideas, right? So this is what I was talking about. Frontline people spending time with customers, non-customers, learning, generating new ideas. Then you need to connect these ideas. You need to have people to connect the innovators together in some sort of a social network. You have to connect the ideas because sometimes, you know, if you leave the idea in the silo, it's not useful. But if you connect them across, you need to find a mechanism. I mean, usually people use a stage gate process to move the ideas from just a raw idea to something that is selected, becomes uh, funded prototyped, and then moves to the execution engine to be implemented. And then the third process, which is important, is reframing. Reframing means challenging the orthodoxies, challenging the status quo. And this is a process where everybody has to be involved. So you can imagine that. So the innovating engine has three processes, creation, integration, and reframing. And you have three roles to play in there, and they all have a contribution to make to these three processes. So maybe the best thing is to give you an example of a company that created a very nice innovating engine mm-hmm. in a very systematic way. So here's your, your German example. I was about to say, I, I like systematized things because I'm German, <laughs> like, so please give me a system. Exactly, exactly. No, no, absolutely. And you, you will appreciate this company as well. This is Bayer. Bayer, the pharmacology and life sciences company. So this is a company with a very rich history of scientific achievements. But in 2014, they decided to create an innovating engine to be able to leverage the capabilities, the innovating capabilities of the more than 100,000 people working for the company. So first, what they did is they made the board, the whole board, responsible for innovation. The whole executive board, okay. The whole executive board. The whole board of directors was responsible for innovation. And you can see they're really in charge of reframing in a large part because they are the ones who put innovation at the center of the corporate strategy. They are the ones who gave permission to anyone, to everyone to innovate in the company. They created the other roles. So for instance, what they did, the other roles they created They selected 80 senior managers across all country groups and global functions to support the board as innovation ambassadors. So these ambassadors 
they would spend most of their time with middle managers. So they would be explaining to them why innovation is important, advocating, training them, supporting them. And then they did something fantastic, a fantastic support system for middle managers. Because you see, middle managers, they're not specialists in innovation. They have people in their team who want to innovate and they don't know what to do. So they created a support structure for these people. So if I'm correct, between 2016 and 2020, they trained and certified a thousand innovation coaches, which were locally activated across the whole company. So any middle manager, if they had an individual person or a team who wanted to innovate and wouldn't know how to do, they could call upon these innovation coaches. And these innovation coaches at the local level, you can find them anywhere. So this is to give you a sense of the role of the middle managers, especially in the integrating process. And then what they created, lastly, they created something called We Solve. It's a digital platform. Copyright infringement to how we solve. <laughs> yes, you should. But it's we solve in one word. <laughs> I knew you would you would appreciate that. But we solve. I can tell you they have like sub platforms on it. But we solve is a fantastic tool because any employee can post a problem that they're struggling with and invite input ideas from anyone in the company. Just to give you a sense, numbers can speak. They let me visit the platform once. At any given time, there are about 200 challenges posted on the platform. For instance, people looking for a new algorithm for, for a new genome sequence, or they showed me like the one I saw, it was like people were wondering what could be a, a brand name for a new, a new seed in the Indian market. So they post these things and they have now 40,000 people wow. have participated 20,000 in the company, yeah? so it's a large company. They have 40,000 people who have participated on the WeSolve platform. The platform is in English, and they have 50,000 people who speak English in the company. Wow. And 40,000 have already participated in the, in the platform. What blew my mind is when they told me that two-thirds of the challenges that are posted, the best solutions, for two-thirds of them, the best solutions come from a department or function different from where the person who posted the challenge is working. And that is fantastic. Yeah, I guess when you're too close to the tree, you don't see it anymore. Absolutely. So you see, you can see that anybody can innovate and you can get innovation from anywhere in the company. So this is a very good example. I mean, you were asking, this is a very good example of a systematic way to build the engine. Something you may like, what we did at my last company, we always had people from now everybody's remote, but back then we had like somebody from the support team sit with the sales guys or, you know, somebody from marketing sit in support, you know, because then they kind of overhear stuff that potential problems are. And we got a lot of like deep insights on like, oh, actually we should do this thing different on the marketing side. So the support guys will not suffer from this, et cetera. You know? So it's like, yes, this is very important. Actually, I can mention that systematically when you're building your innovating engine, there are two spaces you have to really create very clearly. One, you have to create a space to close the gap between the potential innovators and the customers. Okay, so you have to create that space. So, I mean, I mentioned in the book, for instance, a company, Fiskars, I don't know if you know them, it's in Finland. They do garden tools, they do tableware. I mean, they're famous for their scissors, you know, the orange colored handle scissors, Fiskars. So, for instance, 
to learn more about cutting tools like axes and scissors and knives, they have an innovation center. And what they do, they invite not only customers, people who will be using the, the tools, but they also invite what I call non-customers, people who will not be buying their tools, but they can learn from. So for instance, they invite chefs to use their tools or they invite, for cutting tools, they invite surgeons. Hmm. Different point of views, different experiences. Different point of views, or like people who, who are professional, like forestry workers, you know, people who take care of trees, but in large scale and in large numbers, and they learn how to build axes and all that. So this is the space that you have to create. You have to create a space where your people can be together with the customer and the non-customers. And then there's another one, which is really related to what you were talking about. And I can give you another example which I mentioned in the book, which is a cement company. When you notice all the examples I mentioned, these are not your usual tech and entertainment companies. These are regular, ordinary, established companies that became very innovative. So this cement company has developed a, a new cement, a new technology that is much better in terms of CO2 footprint. And it uses a byproduct from the steel industry. So they, they buy a byproduct from the steel industry and then they create this cement. So customers don't necessarily know much about this technology. So what they do is that they create, they call it a win-win-win partnership where they take their scientists and their salespeople together, they go to the customer. Because the salespeople don't necessarily know what this technology can do. So when, when they go together with the scientists to the customer, the scientists can discover problems that the customers didn't know they could solve for them. So this is a very important thing. You have to create this space where you close the gap between your, let's say, innovators and your salespeople, but also between your innovators and the customers. In the tech world, we always have sales engineers people who are like half, like former, let's say extroverted engineers, you know, then become sales engineers. Yes. But here, what is important is that everybody should be doing it. This is where the habit comes. And of course, people, like I told you about the Starwood guys, you know, they say, oh, we don't know. I mean, another simple example also, the importance of creating cross-disciplinary teams. Because what I've noticed observing teams trying to innovate is that you never know who's going to have that insight. It's not always the one you think who's going to have that insight. For instance, I advocate to have interns or to have new employees join innovation teams because they don't have any bias. They're not embedded in the product. So they ask naive questions. They see, they see new stuff. So this company, you will maybe relate to this. This is a Turkish company. This company is called Kortsa. Kortsa, it's part of a industrial group in Turkey called Sabanji. So this Kortsa company is a supplier that makes fabric that is used to reinforce tires. Their main customers are the Bridgestone and Michelin, Goodyear's of the world, right? So what they do is that as part of the habit, they regularly send cross-disciplinary teams to their customers' factories. You could have a team with an engineer, 
product engineer, a production engineer, a marketing guy, an HR person, a legal team person, and they would go to the customer factory and they would stay there. They would camp. Actually, they used to have tents. They would put tents in the customer's factories and stay for a few days at the customer and just kind of walk around and talk to people about what they see. And once they were at a factory, and again, it was not the engineers who noticed that, but it was somebody who was in a functional position who saw that the customers were kind of struggling to safely handle some rolls of fabric. And of course, the customer, as you said earlier, they didn't know there was a solution to this. So they never asked, they never complained about it. But this person who was part of this cross-functional team saw that and they said, wow, there's something. So they were peeking into a problem that even the customer didn't know about. So they went back because, of course, they handle these roles all the time. So they thought about it and they designed a new kind of process and they trained, they went back and trained the customer into this new process and they were able to reduce the resources that they needed to handle this role. It used to take 30 minutes for three people And now with the new process that the supplier taught to the customer, they could do it in 12 minutes with one worker. And you see this company, which was a commodity, you know, they used to sell a commodity. Now they are an innovative producer and provider of solutions and services. And they became, in a few years, they became the third ranking most innovative company in Turkey. And they got like national awards in innovation. But again, it is about creating that space where you have multiple perspectives, as you were saying, meet the customer and listen to the customer. I mean, they would stay there for three days, three, four days, you know? All of my businesses are not in manufacturing. It's like all like online stuff, like software as a service companies, etc. And most of our listeners are, are in the same boat. So I'm thinking about if you can break this down, all the things you've already shared with us, which processes can people implement to turn this to habit? One thing I think is just really cool to have like the problems or the questions that you pose in the business to add them into like a forum software or something like this, you know, kind of have them listed there and everybody in the company can participate and respond, give ideas and then kind of incentivize them to get like whatever bonus or whatever, you know, if they do this right. The other thing is kind of being cross-functional, maybe having engineers join random sales calls or have people from different departments sit with different people, but now everything's remote. So I guess joining random calls or watching recordings of calls, I guess could be a good one, kind of making it even mandatory. Absolutely. Yes. Well, mandatory, I don't know about that. It's extra work. So for instance, I mean, I can tell you what happened. I was working with a a Japanese company here called Recruit. I mean, it's also mentioned in the book. And there was one manager who actually taught me, showed me a trick that he uses, and I use it in all my training now, about how to to motivate people. So again, uh, for everyone to innovate, they need three things. They need to be able to innovate, so they need permission. And I repeat all the time that if you don't give them permission, they won't innovate. They'll do their job, and that's all. So they need to have permission from the highest level that they should innovate. They need to be capable. So you need to give them tools. I mean, they know how to do their craft. They know how to do their job. They've been trained for that. But innovating is a different mindset. So they need to be a little bit trained and then they need to be motivated. And the way you motivate them, I'll tell you what the guy did because he understood one thing is that when people are executing their job, 
they know that the boss, because it's very structured usually, they know that the boss can tell whether they're doing their job correctly or not. That's usually what happens, right? But when people are in the innovating mode, there's no way that the boss can know they had an idea. They could play it safe and never never mention. And actually, when I interview people in companies, innovation is quite intimidating. It's quite intimidating for a lot of people at the front line because they say, oh, it's not my job. Like you say, it's an extra job. I'm not good at it. And they don't want to take a risk because you don't know how the boss is going to react, how people will make fun of you or not. So what he did is that he understood that when people came to the boss and says, boss, I have an idea, he understood that people were taking a risk because the best solution for them was never to talk about their ideas. Just do your job. Just do the job. So what he did is that he understood that when people were coming with an idea, they were making a gift to the boss. I mean, in Japan and everywhere else, when somebody gives you a gift, what do you say? You say, thank you. So he started this habit. Whenever somebody tried to tell him about an idea, he would congratulate them. He would thank them. He would acknowledge it. And then, of course, you know, the word got around. And then people started to get excited and come to see him with all sorts of ideas. And then he noticed that the people were not necessarily very disciplined in terms of thinking about the ideas. There were a lot of crappy ideas. (laughs) So what he did, and this is really a, a way how you can change the culture of a company, instead of telling them, he would simply ask questions. And he would ask two questions all the time. Can you explain to me how this idea is going to create value for the customer? Why would the customer pay for this? And people would not necessarily think about it. They just have an idea. And then sometimes people would tell him, I don't know. So then he would say, okay, so why don't you go and spend some time with the customer and understand if your idea is going to think about it and listen to the customer, observe the customer, talk to the customer, interview them and come back. So people would come back and they say, oh, boss, I know why people will like it. Then he would ask his second question. So notice, by the way, that when he asked the first question, he's anchoring people on the customer. Innovation is about creating value for the customer. And then the second question, he would say, I understand now why the customer would like it, but how would this create value for us? How would it reduce our cost or create value or help us price it conveniently? So you see, what happened is that, of course, in the beginning, people were kind of a bit skeptical. They didn't understand why he kept asking these two questions. But again, this is how you build culture as a middle manager. Shapes the culture and then people, before they come, they kind of think this through. It shapes the culture. Absolutely. And after a while, people would come to see him and say, boss, I have a great idea and the customer is going to like it for this and this and that, and that we're going to make profit because of, you know, and then people started to feel motivated because number one, he was thanking them. He was recognizing them. Now, he was not necessarily giving them financial reward. I mean, people get an award here and there. It's nice. But the important thing is really to be mentioned. The people who need to have an incentive is not the people who generate the ideas, is their bosses, is the middle managers. Alliance UK, for instance, what they do is that they publish Every once in a while, they publish regularly this table league of the most innovative units in the UK. So the middle managers, they can immediately see which unit is more innovative than the other. So this is what I call, I mean, you may know this expression in the States called, don't ask for permission. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. So I don't talk about that. I say, no, no, don't ask for permission. 
make other people jealous. <laughs> yeah. Because you see, as a middle manager, people don't have to be sorry to innovate. They don't have to ask permission because you're giving them the permission. You're saying, please, when you're not in your execution mode, you have this time that is protected. You know, the dabble time at Gore or 3M, had 15, you know. They, so again, I don't want to put a number, but you give that space where people can do innovating. You give them tools, you give them permission, and then people will come, they will deliver. This is something that has to be voluntary. It has to come from their heart. And if they feel any kind of threat or fear, I mean, they're just going to do their job. So it's very important to create that climate. And this is where you put the incentive on the middle manager, the culture, the climate that people first, they know that if you propose an idea, even if it's a silly initiative, your boss is going to say, thank you. I even saw a company where people were rewarding people, giving them a reward for ideas that didn't work. Just to stimulate them, it's important to bring ideas. The more ideas, the better because you don't know until you implement it or you prototype it, you don't know which idea is going to work. So here, when I talk about everyone innovating, innovating in everything you do and making it a habit, I'm playing the numbers game. You're not relying on a genius, one single genius. You're not relying on the few specialists. You're saying, I have many big people in the company. They have a creative mind. Let me unleash it. Use that asset. Free that asset. And you have to make people really motivated and feeling that they get acknowledged when they even try. So my line of thinking in what I prescribe is that you actually create an engine formally. You know, it's like, you know, you have a business card, right? But you have two sides. You have a business card for your execution work. And the other side is your innovation work. As I said, it can be as simple as going to see a customer or sitting in a call center or testing the software of some other company just to learn if there's something to copy from there. So that's what I'm talking about. It cannot be a threat. It cannot be something that people feel anxious about doing. It should be fun. And if you don't do it, if you don't deliver, fine. The important thing is to do it, is to get involved. Another core value of ours is love, not fear. So we're really big on like creating this environment of trust. And also with the error log, you can't get in trouble for making errors because it just happens. But you get in big trouble if you don't add it to the error log because we always want to improve. Another thing I think works well with what you're proposing, if you want to repel or make people think about what are the right ideas to deliver, is to explain everything through the filter of your vision and mission. Example, friend of mine started ring.com and they have like these floodlights that they put on the side of the house and you know when somebody walks past they go on you can talk to them and the engineer said hey we could create the party mode where when the party mode is on since there's a microphone in there and music plays the lights flash you know you thought it's a really cool idea and my buddy said like that's cool but what does this have to do with our mission which is to make neighborhood safer and then it's like oh yeah right you know and then like you don't crush somebody by telling them like hey that's a stupid idea but you kind of give them another tool another thinking filter absolutely this is very important this is what i call reframing reframing is basically challenging the shared view of what we're doing and challenging the basic assumption you know people in a business they usually have a, a shared definition of what is the mission, who we are, 
who are our customers. So you should enable the organization and everyone to participate in challenging that. So again, I'm giving you examples which are not necessarily in software, but you understand already that their analogy is their lessons to be learned. So I was telling you about this Korsa Turkish company. So they were making the fabric that goes into the tire, you know, the radial tire, there's a fabric around the valve that reinforces the tire. So one day the CEO changed the tagline, changed the mission of the company. He says, we're not about fabric. We are the reinforcer. We reinforce anything that needs to be reinforced. And then he broadened the mission. And then now they entered the market in construction. So they reinforce material for construction. They are entered the electronics business and they even have reinforcing solutions for the aerospace. So on the shuttle, they used to provide to the shuttle. But as you were saying exactly is if you don't expand the mission, right? Or what the company is about, things won't happen. So you can see now this might speak to you. A lot of companies, boards are broadening the innovation agenda. So they're putting agenda squarely on innovation, but they're broadening the task to include digital transformation, for instance, right? So they're saying digital transformation is part of the new mission or sustainability is part of the mission. So this is where very often it's, it's the responsibility of the board to reframe the mission for the company. Love it. Yeah, I'm a huge vision, mission, values nerd. I always like neglected the thoughts. It's like, eh, you really need this, but it's like one of the best tools to manage your business and steer your business. Absolutely, because when people are lost and they don't know, should we do this, should we not do this, then there's this North Star that tells them, oh, this is part of our mission, so go for it. I even go so far, I have my personal mission, we have our family core values and managing myself and our families like a business, you know, just makes everything easier. Yeah. Ben, this was really awesome. Thank you very much. I learned a lot. I took a lot of notes. I will create a innovation log. You know, we have like the error log in my businesses. Now we're going to have the innovation <laughs> log, you know, and then definitely get into this or maybe have in our Slack or have like a forum somewhere where we can post questions that we want to solve. I think that's really awesome. I'm really excited. I'm going to get your book for the audience. You can find Ben's book under builttoinnovatethebook.com. You can check it out there. That's right. Yes. That's the website for the book. Yeah. On your local Amazon website also. They're distributing it down. Yeah. Awesome. Do you want to share anything else? Want to pitch something or how people can reach you? Yeah, I mean, people can reach me uh, either on the website. There's a, an email for that or they can email me directly uh, through LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn presence or on my INSEAD uh, email. That's fine. But LinkedIn is fine as well. Awesome. Ben, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing so much knowledge. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was really stimulating. Thank you very much. Is your sales team spending too much time researching leads and accounts? We take over all the labor-intensive sales development tasks so your team can focus on building relationships and closing more deals. We don't just build lists. We take a strategic research-based approach to find your team qualified leads every day. Ready to start? Schedule your free consultation at taskdrive.com. That's T-A-S-K-D-R-I-V-E dot com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step -step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.